other notes from the staff where we talk about our point of view and we share the things we're gonna do and we hope you're learning something new because the path to mastering theory begins with you Welcome to Notes from the Staff, a podcast from the creators of U-Theory, where we dive into conversations about music theory, ear training, and music technology with members of the U-Theory staff and thought leaders from the world of music education. Hi, I'm Greg Risto, founder of U-Theory and associate professor of conducting at the Oberlin Conservatory. Hi, I'm David Newman, and I teach voice and music theory at James Madison University and write code and create content for U-Theory. Welcome to our second season of Notes from the Staff, and a quick thanks to all of our listeners for your comments and episode suggestions. We love to read them, so send them our way by email at notes at utheory.com, and remember to like us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest today for the first episode of our second season is Dr. Melissa Hogue, who is Associate Professor and Coordinator of Music Theory at Oakland University. Dr. Hoag's writings have appeared in the Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy, Music Theory Online, Music Theory Pedagogy Online, College Music Symposium, Notes, and others. She's a scholar who thinks deeply both about music theory and how to teach it in relevant ways. From her 2013 article on strategies for success in the first year music theory classroom to her 2018 article on relevance and repertoire in the 18th century counterpoint classroom, to her recent chapter in the Rutledge Companion to Music Theory Pedagogy, which we'll be discussing today on putting the music in music fundamentals. Melissa, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We're so glad to have you here. Melissa, I have to say, I absolutely loved your chapter on putting the music in music fundamentals uh, that's in the Rutledge Companion to Music Theory Pedagogy. This is a book that we're going to be coming back to a number of times throughout the season. Uh, Its structure is just delightful. It's it's, uh, like a whole bunch of uh, lesson plans or, or ideas from teaching from a bunch of different authors. Um, one of the things that you said in your chapter that I think is absolutely true is that teaching music theory fundamentals is really hard. Why is it so hard? Um, first, I completely agree with you that the uh, companion to music theory pedagogy that Lee Van Handel edited is just really wonderful. And I've already used a lot of the ideas from that book myself. So I'm glad that you'll be talking about it some more this season. I think teaching music fundamentals is hard because most of us who teach this material just think of it as part of who we are as musicians. We don't remember not knowing those things in many cases. And we can't, we find it hard, I think, to take the time to recapture what it felt like not to know things like scales or key signatures or what a tonic is. (laughs) And um, I think that's really the hard thing. Um, And then um, I think some people also maybe consider it not as interesting as teaching analysis. You know, um, I think some people might feel that it's dry or just something they have to get through to get to the good stuff. And can you tell us a little bit about your own experience teaching music fundamentals? What, what, What classes do you teach there at Oakland? So right now I teach and have taught for a long time Music Theory 1, which does include fundamentals. Um, We have a separate fundamentals class for students who really have absolutely no background in music. Um, Like maybe they sing well, but they don't have any background with note reading or anything. But 
everyone gets a very thorough introduction to fundamentals in music theory one. So, and then of course I teach like a bunch of upper level classes and graduate classes, but the fundamentals part of music theory one goes for like the first 10 weeks. So it's most of the semester. And um, of course, before that, before I came to Oakland, I also taught fundamentals at Indiana University, Purdue University at Indianapolis, otherwise known as IUPY. Um, so I taught it then as well, and that was to non-majors. And so that was a different kind of approach. Um, but I really use a lot of the same techniques for teaching college-level music majors, um, some of whom are music minors, and um, teaching those non-majors. I don't see them as particularly that different um, in terms of trying to engage them. Mm -hmm. The level of rigor might be a bit different you know, I don't want to let things go very much when I'm teaching college majors, just because they're going to have so much more theory following it. Whereas a non-major taking music fundamentals, you know, you want to give them a broad overview and some experience. But I really adopt the same general idea as far as like how to engage them in the topic. For you all, what does what's included within music fundamentals? What, what do you cover in that first, say, 10 weeks of the first semester? So for us right now, it is very Western tonal focused. That's a topic I'll talk a little bit more about later. We're in the process of trying to find ways to broaden that a little bit, or at least um, acknowledge that that is the focus. Instead of calling it music fundamentals and acting like it's all music, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, so for now, because that is the focus of our major, with it is a Western tonal music focus in our major. We start with, of course, you know, note reading. We do that very quickly because most of them don't know the other clefs, right? Alto and tenor. We do do, we do, do those because it's a college level fundamentals class. And then major and minor scales. And we do quickly acknowledge the different modes and stuff like that, but we don't require them to know them just because it's enough for them to know major and minor and they'll get to the modes later on. And then we do, you know, um, intervals, a very basic introduction to meter. And then we do triads and seventh chords. And that's, that's pretty much what, what comprises our uh, fundamentals unit for that first year of music theory. What, what do we get wrong about teaching music theory fundamentals? Well, I think we get... I think many people can get it wrong by uh, teaching it in a dry way, you know, mm. like just showing scales, just making students write scales, just, you know, drilling things, which obviously you do have to do some drill. Mm -hmm. Of course, you, there's just no way out of it. But um, having students, you know, just do these really dry exercises without making them sing, or I should say inviting them to sing. <laughs> Um, <laughs> without engaging their musicianship, you know, I mean, even in a class of non-majors, some of those students probably took the class because they had choir in high school or, you know, they sing in their church choir and they wanted to take this music class or they play in a community band or a rock band and they just wanted to know more. So they've got some musicianship. Most people do. And just finding ways to plug that in. And then, of course, applying it to musical examples. I try to include just as much diversity of repertoire as I can. I use like 
band music. Uh, you know, I just, I, I think the mistake really goes back to looking at it as something we just have to get through to get to the good stuff and then not applying it to real music and not inviting students to engage their own musicianship. So that's, that's kind of my, has, that's kind of been my experience. Mm-hmm. That really that really resonates with me. My uh, my first real teaching job was at a community college on the north side of Houston, and I taught pretty much every semester a music fundamentals class. And the first time I taught it, I taught it as though I was you know preparing those students as quickly as possible to go into say theory one at a at a major conservatory. And I wasn't too concerned about doing anything musical. It was like we are going to master these music theory fundamentals. Mm-hmm. And you know it didn't go so well, I have to say, and and that was um, that was a real uh, learning experience for me. And gradually over the five years that I was teaching there, I uh, introduced more and more activities of of, of making music, of of uh, approaching music that students are actually listening to, as opposed to say the things that I had studied in my own undergraduate and graduate training, and yeah. Um, that brings us really nicely, I think, back to um, the subject of your article, which is putting the music in music fundamentals. So maybe maybe we can go in that direction a bit. How what are some of the ways that you do that in your own teaching? So for me, one thing I started doing a few years ago is um, just their first assignment on the LMS. You know, the learning management system for us, it's Moodle. So I will put um, an assignment module on Moodle and ask students a series of questions. And those include things like their preferred name, you know, because sometimes the registrar name is not how they prefer to be addressed. And, you know, what their pronouns are and who their studio teacher is in case I ever need to get in touch with that person about their progress. Um, But then I also ask them their three favorite pieces they're listening to right now. And it can be any music. There's And I say that in the question, like, there's no guilty pleasure type of judgment implied here. Like, it can be video game music, it can be film music, it can be a pop song, it can be something you're playing in lessons or something you've studied in band, anything. And so then as soon as I have that, I slot those things in to the various topics because I have playlists for all my topics on Spotify. And that way we can either start class by listening to one of their songs or one of their examples. And I'll just have them think like, well, what meter is this? Let's conduct it. You know, does this fall into one of the meter types we've studied? Um, or like, you know, what what kind of scale is are they singing at the beginning of that example? Or um, just a lot of different techniques and approaches like that. And like you said, um, using music that the students are listening to is a really good way to engage them. And it's impossible to overstate how much they love it when you play one of their favorite songs. It just, they're so happy. Like I have this super quiet girl who um, is a trumpet major and she is like, especially for a trumpet player, she is just so quiet in class. Like she does not ever speak unless I call on her. And if I call on her, like if I can tell, it looks like she knows the answer, then her face gets red, but she'll answer and she knows the answer. So anyway, I was playing her this piece that she's working on in her lessons, this trumpet piece. And she was just like, so 
happy (laughs) that we're playing that piece. And I just asked a couple of basic questions like what harmony is arpeggiated there at the beginning? Is it a triad or a seventh chord? Is it major or minor? You know, and it just took like five minutes out of class, but it really helps the students feel engaged and it helps them feel like you care about what they're interested in. And it's also a really easy way to diversify what you're teaching, you know, because I mean, at least I cannot keep up with what the young ones are listening to. Like, I don't I, I don't really listen to that stuff. It's not that I don't appreciate it. I just I just can't keep up, you know, so it, it helps me stay more current as well with like pop music and film music and stuff like that. So and then, you know, sometimes I'll just do like a quick search too. like on Spotify, people have all kinds of playlists and they're of various quality. Like if they say it's like compound triple meter, it may or may not really be. Or if they say it's a circus, you know, you have to definitely vet them. But I found some really good examples <laughs> like this Palestinian American singer, Lana Lubani. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but there's this song um, Sold. And it has a harmonic minor scale right off the bat. And it's this really cool, like, um, it has like, you know, she's plugged into her Middle Eastern roots, but it's a pop song and it's in English. And so um, it was really a beautiful example of a harmonic minor scale. And so I played that and then I had students kind of echo it, like after I played it a couple times at the beginning, and then we kind of figured out together what kind of scale it is. And then I had them notate it, you know, and sing it on Solfege, which I just kind of, I sort of fold in organically, you know, even though it's not, I don't give them oral skills exams in fundamentals, um, but mm-hmm. I still fold in Solfege because I believe in Solfege. So for which, for which those of us who teach oral skills are grateful for yeah. <laughs> Well, yes, because they are learning it also in oral skills in that class. But even when I taught it to non-majors, I still had them sing just some basic solfege because it's just so helpful. Um, So that's just kind of an example. And then I I try to also include, if if I don't get these from students, I also include like, um, of course, I include works by Western classical composers as well. Um, I try to always have an example by a woman and an artist of color or composer artist of color. I, I just try to be as broad as I possibly can within the confines of, yes, we're still talking about major and minor tonality as the focus of what we do. Just having them sing as much as they can, too, as I already mentioned. Mm. Can I ask a devil's advocate kind of question, which is, uh, if I do that, if I, if I take this time to, to bring uh, real music into the curriculum, will there still be enough time for them to actually do the drill and practice they need to master these topics? Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, that's what I do. I um, we it actually doesn't take a ton of time to do like the like the students favorite examples. And to me, I view that as such a valuable use of time because students are applying that knowledge and they're viewing it as contextualized, which I think helps them learn it better and retain it longer because they see it as more relevant. And then, of course, like my students always have an assignment due the next class period. And it's not graded necessarily. They only have one graded homework per week, but um, they always have something due. And I call on people just cold. And they know, I said, look, we're all going to make mistakes. Like if you don't know the answer, it's fine. But if you don't know it because you didn't do the homework, 
that's different. Then you should be embarrassed. <laughs> mm. But, um, you know, you have to try to at least make an attempt. And if you don't know it, that's fine. You know, and I always make sure, like, if I make an error, I own it. Like, during the first week of class, I I messed up, like, writing the circle of fifths or something, you know. And I said, I have a PhD in music theory, and I just messed up the circle of fifths. And <laughs> none of you need to be embarrassed about any errors, you know. I said, it's just something that is going to happen, and it's just music theory. It's not, we're not learning to do open heart surgery no one will die if we make a mistake. It is important to learn music theory, but we can all take some of that pressure of perfection off of ourselves, you know? So I, I don't know if I it find, sinks in or not. <laughs> I find that so valuable to, to, to lead by example and, and yes, to, to show my fallibility. <laughs> For sure. Of course. You know, um, it's so different from, I mean, at least my undergraduate experience, it's so different. I mean, everybody was afraid of my theory teacher. Mm. Um, I loved her, but most of the students did not love her. They mm. they were terrified of her. Well, and it's incredibly daunting if you if you see someone who just seems to be impossibly good at something, and then then how do you envision yourself being able to grow into that if you know that this is someone who didn't used to be able to do this and they mm. learned to do this exactly. So it's important to make it seem attainable, I guess. Yeah. You mentioned you have you have the students sing a lot on solfege, and uh, one of the things that you talked about uh, in your chapter in the uh, uh, Companion to Music Theory Pedagogy was that importance of connecting the ideas to sound. Can you talk about various ways that you do that? Obviously, we've talked about using musical examples they already know, so they have a good sonic sonic image and and singing as well. Are, are there other ways that we might do that in our teaching? I mean, for me, it really it's all about singing. I mean, I've also had students do different things with, you know, rhythms and stuff like that. You know, even like in Aural Skills one, when we do rhythms, you know, like just like a, a dry rhythm exercise. Sometimes I'll do things like if they do it well as a group, then I'll have them count off one, two, three, four, and they'll just go measure by measure, which definitely makes it more challenging. And so that's always a fun thing to do. Just as far as connecting it to sound, I mean, I've had students, you know, like when we've done like compositions and stuff like that, which we tend to get to a little later. Although when I taught it for non-majors, I did have them do some little composition assignments, which is kind of an interesting thing, you know, like just write a little jingle in major and it doesn't have to be perfect, like, because they don't really know enough about like chords yet to like match them to the melody. But that was kind of an interesting little experiment. And then just, I played some of those and had us sing some of them. And again, they, they kind of muddle through some of them I've never sung, you know, and that's okay. I'm like, just do your best, you know, but like little composition assignments, if it really is just in fundamentals, and especially it's, if it's for non-majors, I think it's really fun to have them take some risks like that. In our fundamentals unit, we just don't have time to do that because we are going to get to that by the end of the semester. They'll be writing a, a phrase. Um, and then in the second semester, a period structure, you know, and um, I think we're going to have them write a little pop song verse or something like that this year for the first time in theory two. But like if you're teaching non-majors and you have a whole semester, especially, or even majors, and you have like a whole semester dedicated to, 
to fundamentals, I think that would be a great thing to connect it with composition. And especially if you have the keyboard skill yourself to kind of make whatever it is sound really good, you know, like to, to support it. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but like, you know, like if you can, if you can take their idea and kind of be like, I see what you're going for and kind of like give, give it a, give with it a, good a progression. Harmony, give it a good, yeah. mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, then that, that's really fun for them. They really love that. Uh, when you can do something like that. I mean, you know, even with like, counterpoint class like if you can play their minuet in a really convincing way even if there's some some stuff going on you know like it helps i think it reminds me um of a project i did with a bunch of middle school kids where um we where we collaboratively wrote a musical oh cool (laughs) and um that was obviously a totally different structure because it was like a summer camp kind of deal. And we had lots and lots of time, but I, you know, got lyrical ideas from them and then I would get melodic ideas from them, but they didn't have to know, they didn't have to be great at creating melodies because they could give me a melodic idea and I could take it and say, Oh, right. We could do, we could do this with that. That, that would be cool. That, that, I hadn't thought of doing that, but that's of course brilliant that I could, you know, in, in a fundamentals class, I could still use the same techniques so that they have ownership and that they see the utility of it, which is exactly what you're uh, advocating. That's so so awesome. Yeah. I think they really, they really connect with that. And I mean, our students are, they're, they're creative people, right? They're, Mm -hmm. they are, they're musicians, they're artists, or, or they're taking that class, even if it's a class for non-majors, because they have an interest in music. And I I love these ideas for engaging that creativity. Yeah. And it's, it's also much more fun for the instructor to, you know what I mean? It's who wants to just drill scales and I mean, you have to do those things. You have to. But making it a challenge to find these creative ways of engaging them. And so, like, Greg, what you were asking, like, is there time to drill those things? Like, we always have some time at the end of the class to do that. And then, like I said, I I give them an assignment and then we go over that the next time. Um, So they do that drill somewhat out of class, too. And then with the homework assignments, you know, we have a pretty regular schedule where they're due on, we have Tuesday, Thursday, Friday for freshman theory. So they will hand in an assignment on Tuesday and I do everything I can to get it graded and handed back by Thursday so that I can like collate common errors and address things, mm-hmm. you know, and especially if they have a quiz on that Friday, because Fridays are our days when we have quizzes five mm-hmm. times a semester. So but that kind of keeps us on track and it kind of, um, you know, that way you grade it with a quick enough turnaround that they remember doing the assignment, hopefully, you know, and can think back to what they might have done wrong. And uh, that way you're using some of the time outside of class by having those little practice assignments due every class, not for a grade, just I'll call on random people. We are fans of offloading uh, some of that drill work to software. <laughs> yes, I know. I know you are. <laughs> that is a wonderful thing. Which, of course, only works if students do it. Right. But I know. Of course, 
Nothing works if students don't engage. That's why engaging students is so important. Yes, they do have to actually do the work. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things you said at, at the start of our interview was that it's hard to teach music theory fundamentals for a lot of us because they're already so deeply ingrained that we can't remember a time when we didn't know them. As an instructor, how do you approach a topic when you're formulating how you're going to present it, given that that stuff is already so deeply ingrained for you? I just try to keep in mind what things look like from their perspective, from some of their perspectives. Some of them have more experience than others, of course. Students who already play the piano have a very different perspective. But I try to imagine what it would be like if you're a voice major and you've never taken piano lessons and you don't have any of that tactile knowledge. I just try to I just try to keep that in mind instead of expecting them to kind of immediately import that knowledge, which is impossible to do immediately. And um you know, of course they're taking keyboard at the same time, but it's not it, they're not going to be at the same level as another student who has already had like years of piano lessons, for example. So I just try to I just try to put myself in their shoes as much as I possibly can instead of living inside my own head or teaching to the students who are gobbling it all up. And again, I try to use a lot of that's why I use examples from that students give me. And I try to also use, again, especially with voice, some vocal music like the um, Renaissance composer Maddalena Casulana. Her stuff is really beautiful. And she was the first woman to call herself a composer and to publish music that we have record of. And so that's kind of an interesting thing. And, you know, it's Renaissance choral music, so it's very triadic. So that's a good opportunity. Like we've analyzed two of her madrigals this semester. And so that's a good way to engage, just making sure that you have music that addresses different performing forces, of course, um, but especially for those singers who might feel a little bit more behind, you know, like not all of them, but just some of them who come in without that note reading knowledge, you know, they might be very, very good singers and they just, they don't have that knowledge yet to back it up, you know, mm -hmm. like they've never played a triad, you know, so like. It's a foreign concept to them. They don't have any kind of tactile embodiment with knowledge of that. So, you know, showing showing stuff like that in different performing forces for those students helps a lot. And also just having them not just arpeggiate them, but sing it in groups, like, you know, like make them build the chord as the class, like mm. sing it like as a each class. Each person singing one note of the, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And we even do the thing where it's like major, augmented, major, minor, diminished, you know? <laughs> and so the, the augmented is kind of weird, but, you know, at least it's a way to like make it more applicable to everybody. Because I don't, I also don't teach it in a keyboard lab or anything. I mean, I'm just in a regular classroom. So if you're in a keyboard lab, that's helpful because students can at least see the geography of some of these things. Can, can you talk a little bit about the value of keyboard instruction a bit more in terms of learning music fundamentals? So for me, it's such a valuable aid because you can see the whole keyboard. You don't have to learn any special fingerings to make a note sound. I mean, to play a scale coherently, you do need special fingerings, but to play, it's like, it's not like guitar or bassoon or something where 
you know, you have to know the fingerings. It's just so valuable for being able to say, oh, yes, that is a whole step between C and D. We skip exactly one pitch. And for that reason, it's it's just so valuable to, to have students take keyboard at the same time because it, of course, it's an important skill because most schools have pianos and pianos are widespread, right? It's a good thing because if students have those skills, they can use that skill in their eventual professions. But it's just such an invaluable support to music theory learning. And our keyboard curriculum is similar to our theory curriculum, but a little bit slower because it takes time for students to, you know, gain those tactile skills. Um, you know, being able to just feel the geography of a triad, of a second inversion triad. And it's just hard to overstate the um, the importance. As you say, along those lines, I, I think what you're getting at is something that I see all the time when I'm teaching fundamentals, which is that students naturally tend to assume that the musical staff is an accurate representation, just in terms of the vertical space between notes of how far apart notes actually are. But because there are whole steps between some letters and half steps between others, <laughs> that that vertical distance on the staff doesn't always reflect the same distance. And that you know, we see that creep up when students are writing scales, when they're mm-hmm. any any topic from music fundamentals. You have to use some tool to think back to the exact distance and not just the generic distance between letters. And of course, the piano shows us all of those, plus it shows us the uh, the letter names because of the arrangement of white and black notes on it in a way that other instruments don't. I mean, the guitar, yeah, you can see all the half steps, but you can't see where the octaves are on the guitar in the same way you can on piano. Yeah, absolutely. And um, being able to see like the difference between B to C and F to G, you, mm-hmm. perfect example. Yeah, exactly what you're talking about that, you know, on the staff, they look the same, but they're not the same because on the keyboard, you skip a note between F and G. Um, so for that reason, it, it's just so important and you know, whenever I've talked to prospective students, you know, try to get some piano lessons, you know, mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. you come to college, it, wherever you go, it can be a helpful thing. So I want to come back to uh, your article in the uh, Companion to Music Theory Pedagogy, because uh, you listed uh, at the end, so I mean, the, the thrust of the article is putting the music in music fundamentals. But then at the end, you had this just delightful list of six best practices for teaching music fundamentals. I wonder if we could just talk a little bit about each of them. So the first one you listed was uh, repetition counts. Oh, yeah. I think I remember uh, writing about that. So basically, fundamentals never leave the whole first year of theory. Like on every assessment, they will have to write some intervals and they they tend to get a little meaner by the end of the year, like <laughs> some augmented ones in tenor clef and stuff like that. You know, I'm at the beginning, we're a little more gentle, but there's just always fundamentals on every assessment. They don't know which which ones they'll be for sure, but even after we're finished with the fundamentals unit, like they will have um, scales, intervals, chords, um, meter questions. You know, like here's a rhythm with no meter. Provide the meter or renotate this incorrectly notated rhythm to reflect the meter. You know, those kinds of questions. That's one thing. I mean, we just we never stop 
and and we just always like on the LMS for every quiz or midterm or final or anything and fundamentals that includes everything so they know that any of those things can come back at any time and um you know cuz when i first came here some of the upper level students were real foggy on things like intervals and i thought oh no this can't be so that's why like ever since then like they just know that it's going to come up forever <laughs> I, I i love that and i have to say that you know um yes i have also had the experience of coaching a student who is several years past their uh, first semester of music theory and just saying, Hey, what key are we in? And this look of abject terror <laughs> comes across their face <laughs> and followed immediately by the same look of terror on my face for a completely different reason. Um, right. But just, yeah, that, <laughs> I, I think also about, um, probably many people are familiar with Ebbinghaus's forgetting curve, which is this, uh, this theory, I think it goes back to the 1960s that the moment you learn something, you have a hundred percent chance of getting it right. And that quickly plummets with time. Uh, but each time you're asked that question again, it's a moment of learning that pops you back up to a hundred and the curve falls at a more shallow rate with each moment of review. So I, I do love that idea that of, of bringing back those fundamentals on, you know, on at many points throughout that first year, because you, mm. you do at it, when you do that, significantly decrease the uh, rate of forgetting, conversely, increase the rate of retention for those topics. That's great. Yeah. And the way I explain it to students is we just, we don't want you to be afraid of anything. Like, I don't want you to end up conducting the local high school's jazz ensemble at 7 a.m. where, you know, you have like five French horns and an oboe d'amour and <laughs> three saxophones. <laughs> And you have to help them with the transpositions, you know, or you, you know what I mean? Like you have to be able to deal with these things and not be intimidated because students will smell fear, you know? And that's, that's how I put, it. I just say like, you know, like, cause we've been doing instrumental transposition this week, which they're always like, why? Who allowed this to happen? <laughs> There's always like these reform ideas, you know? Yes. <laughs> Um, anyway, and I always make the joke about the local high school's 7 a.m. jazz band with some ridiculous smattering of instruments that are all transposing at different intervals or something, you know, but they all want to take jazz band. <laughs> so I have, I have actually referred students to Bruce Haynes's book, um, uh, Performing Pitch, The History of A. Uh, for like, you know, such a great book, because in inevitably, if you start talking about why we wound up with all these different transpositions, the students get super interested in it. And I'm like, here, if you want 350 pages on it, <laughs> go right ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm always like, well, the saxophone was the last one. So blame Adolf Sax, because those are by far the worst trans. I mean, E flat. Mm -hmm. Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> Was that really necessary? Couldn't you have done something better than that? You know? <laughs> and for me, I'm just like, but that's just a bass clef transposition, right? It's like, I'm just. Oh, just... see, I don't ever think like that. Yeah. Yeah. I had the old conductor clef training where it's like, I'm reading an E flat part in treble clef. If I just imagine a bass clef, then it transposes itself for me. Mm. See, I'd rather just think down a major sixth, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm self-punishing <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah. 
proof. <laughs> uh, so the second one on your list of best practices was consistency and rigor matter. Oh, especially like, yes. And, and again, this goes back to when I first came and I was like, so disturbed by students who were going to be graduating and didn't have a good grasp of any of this stuff. And, and they knew it. And they were like, they were upset. Like they, they didn't want to feel like that, you know? Mm. So starting with the first year, then we just were just very specific about like, you know, the sharp has to be centered on the line. And I'm not a big notation stickler, but it has to be clear. Like, it has to mean what it means, you know? Mm. Like, it needs to be on the correct line, and it doesn't have to be a beautiful sharp, but it needs to be, like, accurate, you know? And just being very consistent. Like, you know, if the rhythm is supposed to be this, then it needs to be that. Like, don't don't be lackadaisical with those things and really hold them to it. And they will meet that, you know, or if your standards are way up here, students will at least approach that, you know, but if your standards for consistency is like mediocre, then, then they will approach that too, you know? Mm -hmm. So if you can do that in a, a fun and inviting and engaging way, you know, without, you don't want to, you know, again, like, while being fallible yourself and admitting that everyone makes mistakes, but then at the same time being consistent and holding a reasonable level of rigor um, for their actual eventual gaining of those skills. Yeah. At least for me at my school. <laughs> it all varies by institution, curriculum goals, student body and preparation and the kinds of majors you, ha you know, all those things. Mm -hmm. But I guess maybe maybe a corollary of that would be that you know if uh, if you're not able to have a certain degree of rigor in in what you're teaching, maybe teaching fewer subjects with more rigor is better than trying to cover more with less rigor. For sure, yeah. like maybe you don't get to seventh chords, maybe you just do triads, and that's fine. Or maybe no alto and tenor clef. I mean, for a, mm -hmm. a non-major fundamentals course, I would never do alto and tenor clef. I just do that because I'm teaching first-year music mm. majors. Yeah. Um, and I know that they're, they're going to be looking at orchestral scores and music history and stuff like that. And so they need to know those things. But um, And I think it's, you know, of course, good for things like sight singing because it tends to put everybody on a level playing field, you know, mm -hmm. to read a clef that's really not very familiar to almost anyone. Um, <laughs> but for a non-major fundamentals class, it'd be very different, you know. Uh, your third best practice, more assessment opportunities are better than fewer. Oh, yeah. Um, that's just so that no one assessment activity is like this behemoth, terrifying, do or die kind of situation. So as I mentioned, we have um, graded assignments every week. We have five quizzes, one of which is dropped. Um, so they can have like a bad day or it, it doesn't have to be this big, stressful thing. Um, and then a midterm and a final, we've tried to make it so they have a lot of chances, you know, mm -hmm. and that they can improve as the semester goes on. And, you know, if something weird happens, we work with a given student, like if if they've had a a bad run of health or they're in crisis or something like that. Of course, we 
we work with them and and try to help them find ways to make up some of that work, you know, so we make exceptions, of course, we'll re-give quizzes again or write a new one or whatever. And, and I guess really related, your, your next best, best practice is uh, that prompt grading and specific feedback are important for learning. Yeah. Um, like I said earlier, um, just I try to turn things around by the next class period just so that they have time to get the feedback before the next thing is due or before our if we're having a quiz that Friday before the quiz so that they have time to, we have supplemental instruction, which is offered through our academic success center. And um, it's a couple of sessions taught by an upper level student and it's for theory one and two. And um, so SI is offered on Thursday and Friday, which is perfect. So if I give the homeworks back, they hand them in Tuesday, I turn them around and get them back to the students by Thursday, Thursday morning, then they can take it to SI and get help with it there. Or, you know, I can address any questions in class that day. And then, um, and then they're good to go for the next one that's due the following week. So, you know, but if you hold on to something like that for a week, you know, that kind of, it's not doesn't happen in time for them to improve. So, mm-hmm. right. I think for me, this is where I often turn to technology as well, because just the ease of a student's, you know, am I writing the scale correctly? I don't have to wait two days between when I turn it in and get it back to find yeah. out whether I've written that scale. Absolutely. Correctly. Of course. And we really need to explore some of those ideas. I think that would, that would be a good direction for us to take. You've already talked a bit about your fifth best practice, involve students in finding examples of various oh, yeah. techniques. Anything else to say there? I mean, just that I'm always saying things like, I, you know, for later in the year, like, I really need some musical theater examples of ascending five, six sequences or, you know, I don't have enough compound triple minor mode pop music examples. And every now and then, even an upper level student who I haven't had since their first year will send me an email and be like, hey, this video game has, you know, here's a YouTube video. Or like this one kid sent me a rap example and was like, before you play it in class, make sure you find a clean version. <laughs> he wanted to make sure I didn't just like play it without like, you know, listening more of the way into the track because I think it's <laughs> fairly profane. Um, so uh, anyway, I I definitely, especially some of them who I know are really into it. I I'm like, please go find some of these things or listen for them and send them to me. And it just kind of helps them stay, keep their theory brain on when they're not in theory. Yeah. I've been doing the same thing in oral skills um, with, uh, and we've listened to Childish Gambino twice this semester. <laughs> we've, um, we're doing metric modulation, and one of his songs does oh, metric cool. modulation. It's um, great, and uh, we t- just just used the Marvel Marvel Studios theme song this week. See, and that's what I rely on students for because like my knowledge of film music is not good. I mean, I know a few things, but I, I'm not like they are, you know, and certainly not video game music, you know, other than like the Super Mario Brothers from my childhood, which is surprisingly uh-huh. still relevant. I, I found it. it's amazing. <laughs> it's wonderful. That's it's my like, favorite five nine of five and all rep is oh. the opening of <laughs> or mode mixture. 
when oh he dies. Gosh, bum, 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 ba, dee, da, da, dee, oh, yeah. Da, da. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Yeah. It's so great. It's the best example of mode mixture that's, ever. Yes. Uh, the yeah. water world, the planing. Oh, gosh, don't get me started. Right. <laughs> uh, well, I guess related to our laughter, your last best practice is have fun. And I think you've given us some ideas of, of how you create that fun environment in your classes. Anything else to say along those lines? Use puns. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, I kind of, I'm kind of joking, but like, you know, I, I just find that it, it depends on how you are in the classroom. Like everybody is different, but for me, I tend to be fairly silly. I mainly, I feel like I, I just want them to see me as approachable, you know, and I think they do. Um, and I, I want them to see music theory as something that is pleasant and interesting and fun. And so, especially with the first year students, I tend to be rather silly. You know, I'll like today we were talking about, as I said, instrumental transposition, and a couple of the instruments had to be transposed to C to sound in B flat. And I said, Do you see what I mean? No pun intended. And I mean, it's like the stupidest oh. joke ever. <laughs> but they all laughed. Like, you know, even though it's like, I mean, talk about a dumb worst stupid pun ever you know but um they don't need to be good to be no they're better if they're bad (laughs) they're you know it's it's even stupider so so but i mean you know just like having fun and um adopting a sense of joy and um I, i don't i don't know like a sense of wonder or like you know, isn't a half diminished seventh chord like the most amazing thing ever, mm-hmm. you know, and then playing a couple quick examples just on the keyboard, like, listen to that. Like nothing else sounds like that, you know, and just like trying to kind of like infect them with some of that sense of wonder. Mm. So, yeah. Um, you know, and the success varies, you know, some students are, are maybe not ever going to feel like that about music theory, but I hope some of them do. <laughs> Gosh, well, this has been just a delight. Any any last words of advice or wisdom for our listeners? I mean, I think I mentioned at the beginning, I think the next hurdle, um, at least for me, is trying to just find a way to acknowledge that this is like, we're talking about like tonal, Western tonal music mm-hmm. fundamentals and maybe building in even some like, just little writing assignments here and there. And especially if I were teaching non-majors, I would do it a lot more, I think, if it did, if I weren't building toward this later curriculum of, um, you know, comparing and contrasting something like ragas and minor modes and, you know, um, a way of acknowledging that there's this whole other part of the world and that we value that and we are curious about it, regardless of what our focus happens to be here, you know? Um, so I think, I think finding a way to do that in a way that's meaningful and respectful and fosters a sense of curiosity, I think that's kind of like the next, the next for me, the next hurdle for me and my, my curriculum and my students hmm. at, at my school, you know? 
so that that's the next challenge. Well, we're so grateful to have you spend this time with us. Yeah, it's wonderful to talk to both of you. And um, I'm definitely going to look up that Bruce Haynes, The History of A. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really fun. The, the, the funny thing, of course, is if you type The History of A into Google, oh. you get totally unhelpful <laughs> yeah. results. So I think it's, it's either performance pitch or performing pitch, The Story of A. So yeah. Okay. I will definitely um, have to look that up because, I mean, I know some things about, you know, the history of instruments and stuff like that, but. Yeah. And, and he goes really like down into the weeds. So like, yes, we like measured, the details of why a clarinet is. pipe of this organ in this city built in this year, etc. Very fascinating. And yeah. it would be great to have something like that to point students toward so they can just nerd out on their own time, you know. Mm -hmm. Totally. That's why we have Bach Magnificat in D, yeah, which is later the Bach Magnificat in E. Oh, because it was easier to uh, to uh, transpose some of the parts to match. Oh, the, to match the local pitch. Yeah. Huh. I did yeah. not know that. Very fascinating. Anyway, we are we are definitely uh, approaching our our time end here. So yeah, <laughs> Melissa, thank you again so much. Yeah, it was wonderful to meet you and to talk to you both. Excellent. Thank you again. Yes, thank you. Notes from the Staff is produced by utheory.com. Utheory is the most advanced online learning platform for music theory. With video lessons, individualized practice, and proficiency testing, Utheory has helped more than 100,000 students around the world master the fundamentals of music theory, rhythm, and ear training. Create your own free teacher account at utheory.com slash teach.